Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Between the Animals and the Gods, Virtue and Vice, According to the Apostle Paul, and is based upon the readings for Sunday, August the 13th, 2006. When I was in grad school 20 years ago, I figured that I could do worse than take one of my comprehensive exams on John Calvin, one of the founders of my Presbyterian tradition. Trained as a lawyer, Calvin impressed people as a very stern person. At the College of Montague in Paris, for example, his classmates nicknamed him the Accusative Case. In his empathetic biography, Calvin's friend and successor at Geneva, Theodore Beza, described Calvin as, quote, a strict censor of everything vicious in his companions, end quote. I enjoyed my brief work on Calvin, but I still cringe at his theocracy in Geneva that tried to legislate personal virtue. Consider this example from his work called Ordinances for the Supervision of Churches in the Country. Quote, If anyone sings songs that are unworthy, dissolute, or outrageous, or spin wildly round in the dance, or the like, he is to be imprisoned for three days and then sent on to the consistory. End quote. As you might imagine, it wasn't long before the magistrates and the free spirits in Geneva soured on Calvin's program. And so, on April 23, 1538, they expelled him and his colleague, William Farrell, from the city. At the opposite extreme, others dismiss virtue codes as repressive, puritanical, outmoded, or irrelevant. For example, Oxford University Press has recently published a series of books on the seven deadly sins, one book each on anger, sloth, gluttony, lust, envy, greed, and pride, each of which was originally presented in a lecture series at the New York Public Library. But the books aren't what you might expect. Francine Prose, for example, considers gluttony first as a religious sin and then as a medical compulsion, but she concludes that we should celebrate gluttony as an occasion for passion and pleasure. Joseph Epstein downgrades envy from sin to what he calls, quote, poor mental hygiene, end quote. Eric Michael Dyson writes about pride, that it's not only, quote, the fundamental sin, but also, quote, the crown of the virtues and even a stroke of moral genius, end quote. Simon Blackburn, a philosopher at Cambridge University, complains that lust gets a bad press and believes that lust is, quote, not merely useful, but essential, end quote. In his brief review of this Oxford series, Stephen Prothero concludes that the books will probably appeal to readers who sacrifice traditional categories of virtue and vice in favor of freedom. The problem here, though, is evident in the wisdom of the Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor, whom Prothero quotes. According to O'Connor, the Catholic novelist believes that you destroy your freedom by sin. The modern reader believes that you gain it in that way. Left to our own vices, 
A world without virtue would be a bleak and even terrifying place. In the epistle for this week, writing to the Christians in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, Paul describes people who are, quote, futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more, end quote. Ephesians 4, 17-19 Hardened hearts, gross insensitivity, flagrant indulgence, and insatiable desire. We need not read the Apostle Paul as generalizing about every human being in order to find contemporary expressions of his ancient words, whether in our abuse of the environment, misogynist rap lyrics, consumerism, corporate greed, internet pornography, or bare-knuckle politics. Instead of legislating virtue, Paul appeals to the Ephesians to undertake a moral movement from the old to the new, from darkness to light, from childishness to maturity, and from foolishness to wisdom. In particular, he invokes a metaphor that is so common in the New Testament that some scholars believe that it might come from an early version of catechetical instruction. Paul tells the Ephesians to quote-unquote put off their old self, as if to remove filthy garments, and to quote-unquote put on their new self, which self, he says, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Instead of reading Paul's exhortations as legalistic commands that restrict my freedom, I think of them as promises that will transform my life or as gifts to receive instead of goals to achieve. Imagine a politician who put off predictable rhetoric and put on truth-telling, or a parent who exchanged compulsive anger for gentleness, a corporate criminal who made restitution and shared generously with others or a musician who realized how badly raunchy lyrics degrade our communities. Who would not long to live in a society where, quote, bitterness, rage, anger, slander, and every form of malice, end quote, were rare exceptions, and where kindness, compassion, and forgiveness ruled the day? Ephesians 4, 31-32. On the journey with Jesus, such dreams can become reality, at least in part, and I dare say that you can find examples in your local church. When you soft-pedal the language of virtue and vice, says Prothero, and sacrifice notions of sin in the name of freedom, you lose something. You lose, he suggests, quote, a sense that something is missing from this world, that awareness of the incompleteness and unsatisfactoriness that St. Augustine took for evidence of another life, and that saints from Mary to Mother Teresa have taken as a charge to make this life conform to our imaginings of the next life. 
Say what you want about the vices of the dogma of sin. One of its virtues has always been to remind us that we, all of us, live between the animals and the gods, that one of the unappreciated challenges of human life is to somehow become a human being." End quote. As imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1, we enjoy the hope of becoming truly, if not perfectly holy, and in the process, also fully human. And now for further reflection. How do you read our culture when it comes to virtue and vice? Second, have you had any experiences with puritanical legislation of virtue? Or perhaps libertine dismissals of virtue? How do we confuse personal virtue with sanctimony and moralism? And finally, what do you think Stephen Prothero means when he describes all of us as living, quote, between the animals and the gods? For books this week, I review Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith by Rob Bell, Grand Rapids, Zondervan, 2005, 194 pages. I first heard of Rob Bell at a pastor's conference where his publisher advised me that Velvet Elvis had sold 100,000 copies in less than a year, and it was the author's very first book. He also said that 30,000 people a week downloaded his sermons from the Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan that Bell founded in February 1999 at the age of 28. As Bell tells the story in this book, six months after Mars Hill Church opened their doors, 4,000 people attended. In two years, the number swelled to 10,000 people at their three Sunday services. So, I was not surprised when my son in college told me not long ago that he and his buddies were listening to downloaded sermons by what he called some guy named Rob Bell. Or that, recently, the New York Times ran a very positive article about him on July 8, 2006. All this from a remarkably candid voice that insists that, quote, the thought of the word church and the word marketing in the same sentence makes me sick, end quote. Bell says that he has never read a book on church growth never attended a church seminar on church never attended a seminar on church planting mars hill he says started with quote no advertisements no flyers no promotions and no signs end quote and in the new york times article he bristled at comparisons between him and billy graham saying i would be suspect of any pastor who had a clever response to that question but bell is clearly a very gifted person with passion and dreams to complement his candor. Velvet Elvis is his effort to, to ask afresh the difficult question of what it means to be a Christian here and now, in this time, in this place. Bell says he affirms the historic Christian faith, and yet he seeks what he calls a new understanding of what that means. Velvet Elvis is thus delightfully free of religious jargon and cliches, that in my mind obscure more than they enlighten. 
Rob Bell wants Christians to move away from their defensive posture, to acknowledge, for example, that thinking people have honest questions about life and the gospel, or to admit that the Bible's a difficult book. Their Mars Hill Church, for example, had a doubt night, and in Velvet Elvet you learn the sorts of questions that people have when you honestly encourage them to express doubt. Bell, then, is more intent to celebrate the mystery of the gospel than to conquer it or explain it. And in this sense, he, in his book, does an admirable job of recovering the complexity of a simple gospel that is often turned simplistic with clichés. But paradoxically, I also think the visceral appeal of his message is that he makes a complex gospel simple. You will not find weighty theological insights or subtle distinctions in Velvet Elvis. You won't learn much about New Testament scholarship that tackles the Bible as a difficult book. Nor will you feast on the wisdom of the patristic mothers and fathers. Rather, he presents a simple gospel in casual prose. He avoids controversial issues such as homosexuality or politics. And he makes liberal use of personal anecdotes. When the Left Behind series sells 60 million books, and Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life sells 20 million books, it makes you question the relationship between marketing forces that manipulate mammon, a genuine movement of God perhaps, and a deep longing in the hearts of people who are so easily satisfied with junk food theology. Bell says that a thousand people showed up at their very first Sunday back in 1999. Even though I appreciated Velvus Elvet, I wondered what, if anything, it has to say to the average believer or the average pastor in the everyday church. You read a lot today about large, wealthy megachurches with famous pastors like Rob Bell's Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids. These monster churches offer some advantages, and I even attend one. But of the roughly 400,000 congregations in America, at least 50% of them have fewer than 75 regular attenders. In isolated rural areas, the average size of a church is about 50, and in urban settings, about 100. I wonder what Rob Bell might say to these parishioners and their pastors. Rob Bell, Velvet Elvis. For film this week, I review Sketches of Frank Geary from the year 2005. In this documentary film by his friend Sidney Pollack, we meet Frank Geary, born in 1929, winner of the Pritzker Prize, 1989, and the controversial rebel rule breaker in the world of architecture. We also meet colleagues in his firm who contribute to his deconstructionist designs various clients, business executives like Mike Eisner and Barry Diller, artists, musicians, a dissenting critic from Princeton, and even Gary's therapist of 30 years, all of whom comment on Frank Gary's life and work. I especially enjoyed the considerable time that the film spent in Gary's studio, watching the artistic process unfold with paper models, computer simulations, pen sketches, and so forth. 
A beautiful soundtrack accompanies a cinematic tour of his notorious creations around the world, including his signature piece, the titanium-covered Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Critics complain that Geary's work is perverse, tortured, ugly, and dissonant. But most people acknowledge the remarkable genius of a man from a poor Jewish family who early in his life drove a truck for two years. Sketches of Frank Geary from the year 2005. And then finally for poetry this week, we've posted a very familiar poem by William Wordsworth, The Daffodils. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats o'er high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 13th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.